welcome to Role-Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role-playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 124, Heritage Models and a Sampling of Their Products. This week, we're going to hop into the old Wayback Machine and take a trip back to the late 1970s and early 1980s. I realize we've sort of been in that time period a lot over the past month or so, but it's a time period with a lot of game history in it, if not all the really good game history in it. So be prepared to spend some more time there as we go on in the lifetime of this podcast. Let's go on ahead and get to it, so hop on the tour bus and we'll hit the first stop on today's tour. Heritage Models was an American game company founded by Jim Oden in the 1970s in Dallas, Texas. It was originally formed to produce metal miniature wargaming soldiers and was, at first, a production company only. In 1974, however, Oden decided to open a retail game shop, which he named the Royal Guardsmen. Unfortunately, Odin began to run into financial issues, which have been specifically noted as cash flow problems. So in January of 1977, he entered into an agreement to merge companies with CustomCast, which was a miniatures company founded by Duke Seyfried. CustomCast had planted its flag in the then-new and very lucrative role-playing game market, specifically where it concerned fantasy miniatures. All three businesses, Heritage Models, The Royal Guardsmen, and Custom Cast, were all rolled into one brand, and Heritage Models was the name they decided to keep. Seyfried moved to Dallas, both as proof of his dedication to the new business and to provide as much support as possible. During the period after the merger, he created and produced licensed miniatures for properties like Conan the Barbarian, Lord of the Rings, and John Carter of Mars. Now, I'd normally just roll on with the history lesson, but it occurs to me that only the most hardcore of the old school gamers will know who Duke Seyfried was. And while I consider myself to be pretty hardcore, I had no clue who he was until I did the research for this episode. So I'll turn to Shannon Applecline for a few words on him, and this comes from Applecline's 2014 book, Designers and Dragons, the 70s. Quote, Seyfried was one of the most influential people in the early hobbyist miniatures market. He created the idea of blister packs to sell sets of infantry rather than individual figures, and later came up with the idea of including figures with slightly different poses in those packs. Most importantly to the RPG industry, he came up with the phrase adventure gaming, which was used to differentiate RPGs from wargaming in the earliest days of the hobby." End quote. While I admit Shannon Applecline isn't usually a source I prefer to use for, we'll just say issues, I can't argue with his assessment of Duke Seyfried, and we'll dig into his background a bit deeper in the next stop on the tour, which we'll get to in a bit. The merging of companies didn't do what it had been designed to do, as Heritage Models continued to have serious cash issues. In 1979, Seyfried had a conversation with Jerry Campbell in a Dallas area restaurant, and they were discussing Seyfried's money issues. For those who don't know, Jerry Campbell basically was military model distributors, so this was definitely a meeting of the miniatures' minds. In what I'd call an absolute stroke of luck, Ray Stockman, who just happened to be a millionaire, overheard the conversation. 
And rather than thinking to himself that this wasn't any of his business, he decided that whatever argument Seyfried was using to explain his issues to Campbell was pretty darn convincing. And so he decided to do something about it. That something was to buy out Jim Odin's share of Heritage Models, which was then rebranded as Heritage USA. Heritage USA got off to the races almost right out of the blocks as they expanded their business into the tabletop role-playing game market. And Star Trek Adventure Gaming in the Final Frontier was the first game in their line, though others would follow, and we'll dive into a few of those later on in the show. But they weren't done diversifying their position in the gaming world. In the late 1970s, they added Game Time Games to their family of companies, and that got them into the board game market with games like Quest. Battleline Publications, which was a war game company, was also merged into Heritage USA, and it brought war games like Circus Maximus, Chariot Racing, and Gladiator into this new arrangement. Battleline didn't remain a part of Heritage USA for very long, though. It was sold to Avalon Hill in October of 1979, and they reprinted and republished all three games that were originally a part of the Heritage USA portfolio. But Heritage USA didn't stop trying to expand the business. In the early part of the 1980s, they formed the Dwarf Star Games line, and that line cranked out fantasy and sci-fi micro-games like Barbarian Prince and Outpost Gamma. For all the acquisitions, Heritage USA was basically doomed from the start. In 1982, Duke Seyfried sensed what was coming and left the company to work for TSR, where he helped them launch their own line of fantasy miniatures. Without one of the greatest minds in the fantasy miniatures game in their camp, Heritage USA limped into 1983, and they went out of business during that year. At this point, I'm pretty sure I know what you're thinking. Why in the hell is he wasting time with a company that really only existed from 1977 to 1983? Well, First off, let's cut that timeline to end in 1982, really, because Heritage USA didn't really produce much of importance after Seyfried left. But most importantly, we kind of need to talk about Heritage USA to provide a bit of background on some of the games they produced. It also gives me a good excuse to talk about a miniatures-only company because it gives me a chance to talk about the things that really put Duke Seyfried on the map. So let's get to the second topic on today's show, Der Kriegspieler's Fantastiques. Der Kriegspieler's, or The Wargamers in English, was a company founded by Duke Seyfried in the 1950s, and he created the company for the expressed purpose of designing and creating Napoleonic figures for retail sale. And I realize that sounds weird as hell to those of us listening in 2023, but if you'll remember back to either of the two episodes I've done on miniature wargaming, that was the tabletop game for all of us geeks in the 1950s. And it could be a rather lucrative business as well if your minis were worth a shit. And just in case we're not all on the same page here, his minis were definitely worth a shit, just so that we're clear. He also had an interaction that all by itself would be a reason to do an entire 30-minute podcast episode, even though the tale itself is only going to probably take two minutes to tell. So let me tell it. In the late 1960s, Duke entered into correspondence with J.R.R. Tolkien. It wasn't long or extended, but Duke apparently made an impression on the author because when Duke found himself in England later on, the two men met. During that visit, Duke suggested that he could produce some hobbits, dwarves, and goblins from Pewter for Tolkien. 
Something in that presentation hit the right notes with the author, and he worked with Duke to sketch out some ideas before their meeting was finished. Duke returned to the U.S. and joined forces with Tim Kirk. Kirk was an artist with the American Greeting Card Company and was, according to all reports I've seen, a damn good artist. Kirk's responsibility was to create professional renderings of the sketches Duke worked out with Tolkien, which would then give Duke what he needed to sculpt 25mm minis. In the midst of production, Tolkien passed away, but since Duke had his blessing, he kept on working. Oh, and the reason why I started saying Duke instead of Seyfried is that the number of times I've messed up saying his last name led me to decide to use his first name only moving forward, so sorry if I confused you. Anyway, back to the story. We mentioned his company CustomCast earlier, and Duke opened that company in Dayton, Ohio in 1972. Late in 1974, Duke announced his new line of 25mm figures and gave them the name Der Kriegspielers Fantastiques, which translates roughly to the Fantasy Wargamers. The first run in that line was the aforementioned figures based on the characters from the Fellowship of the Ring. The figures were popular as hell. They sold 10,000 units in a matter of months. Now, I know what you just said or thought. 10,000 minis in the mid-1970s? how? Well, two things. First, The Lord of the Rings was then, as it is now, exceptionally popular. And that was with not having Peter Jackson's epic trilogy to fall back on. I mean, in 74, the books were pretty much all you had for Lord of the Rings. And we ate that shit up. Well, I didn't in 74. I, I couldn't read yet. I mean, I was only a year old. Sorry about that. Anyway, the second reason for the quick sales was the release of this little tabletop role-playing game that you might maybe have heard of once or twice, Dungeons & Dragons. If you'll remember back to my D&D history episode, which is the second episode of the podcast, I noted that Gary Gygax had modeled the concepts from D&D from Lord of the Rings, among other things, and had even originally called halflings hobbits, but changed that to avoid issues with the Tolkien estate. So... Fantasy miniatures for a game based on the same fantasy you created them for? It's a match made in heaven, I'm just saying. Duke followed that lineup with more figures in the same style, then moved on to creating figures in a more generic fantasy style. Now, if you check the records, Der Kriegspieler's Fantastiques was the first significantly successful fantasy miniature line in the U.S. However, it wasn't the first fantasy miniature line in the U.S. Shannon Applecline reports that, quote, U.S. miniatures maker Jack Scrugby beat Seyfried to the fantasy punch with a 30 millimeter line he sold at Gen Con 7, end quote. And for the record, Gen Con 7 was in 1974. We know where the story goes from here as we covered that in our last stop. By now, you know how much I love my reviews, and while I never figured I'd be reading a review of a miniatures line, it just really felt appropriate to do one here. John Norris handled the review for the February-March 1978 issue of White Dwarf. He said the line, quote, should be of particular interest to Tolkien addicts because they are by far the most suitable range currently available for wargamers set in his Middle Earth, end quote. For those not playing in Middle-earth, he said those players would, quote, find that the personality figures, and indeed many of the ordinary ones, make excellent character figures, while dungeon owners will find the range a prolific source of monsters with which to populate the dungeon and the surrounding wilderness, end quote. So with the miniatures history of heritage models addressed, let's get into a few of the products the company released during its brief history. 
We'll start with the 1978 release of Star Trek Adventure Gaming in the Final Frontier. Now, I know I covered this back when I covered games based on fandoms, but I wanted to talk about it again, both because I know there are some folks who haven't heard that episode, and I found a few more things about the game that I didn't have when I recorded that episode initially. Right off the top, this game was the first officially licensed Star Trek role-playing game, as Paramount Pictures issued the license for it in 1978. This license also included miniatures to pre-produce to support it, and the license covered both the live-action television series and the animated series. I guess I should note that if you thought Lower Decks was the first ever Star Trek animated show, you really need to get in the Wayback Machine and check this out. The setting's pretty simple. Unexplored planets within the United Federation of Planets, and pretty much all of the characters are expected to be members of Starfleet, which of course they'd be. I mean, I don't play Trek to be the enemy, just saying. Also, the game is set during the time of the original series and animated series, so if you know your star dates, you've got the idea. The game sold fairly well, but as you'll note from our rundown on Heritage Models, the company was pretty much in a permanent financial bind, so even a good-selling tabletop role-playing game wasn't going to last long, and Heritage dropped the license after a couple of years. The rulebook from 1978 is the only official product released for this version of the game. That being said, a number of unofficial items have been created. Paul Montgomery Crabaugh wrote Star Trek Beyond the Final Frontier, and it was released in the January 1982 issue of Different Worlds magazine. The overall article was seven pages and had 15 small tables. While I couldn't find the entire article, the editorial blurb from the beginning of the article appears on multiple sites. It says, Written to supplement Star Trek Adventure Gaming in the Final Frontier role-playing rules, this variant covers a wide range of topics, including experiences, skills, aging, salaries, price lists, the referee's role, chain of command, and world generation. Emmett F. Milestone wrote an unofficial adventure, Kirk on Carrot 2, a Star Trek scenario report. It was created for use at Dundracon 4 in 1982. He specifically targeted the adventure for what he called old dungeon mates, as well as non-gamer Trekkies. Again, we don't have much on the specifics of the adventure, but we do know from reports that there were romance rules created for the adventure, which makes sense for any Star Trek product concerning one James Tiberius Kirk. And maybe a couple of green female aliens, but maybe I'm getting out of my lane here. Now, I realize I put the cart before the horse here, since I talked about the unofficial product before I even mentioned the game's system, but we're going to remedy that right now. The rules in the book are split into two sections, a basic game, which uses pre-generated characters from the series, and an advanced game, which has full character creation and more advanced rules. The basic section lives up to its name. It explains what the six characteristics used in the game are, how movement works, provides the rules for hand-to-hand -hand and ranged combat, how the sequence works for what they call the action phase, and 20 personalities along with the values to character. And for those non-Trek fan players, an explanation of the gear from Star Trek is provided. Since I mentioned them, let's talk about the six characteristics. We'd actually refer to them as attributes today, and I've seen them referred to as both in the materials I've seen. They're pretty standard for role-playing games today. Strength, dexterity, constitution, charisma, luck, and mentality. And they pretty much work the way you think they would. 
If you're creating a character from scratch, which I realize is an advanced option, but I'm including it here because it makes sense, you'd roll 3d6 for each and modify it by the race you're playing. Speaking of race, pretty much all of the humanoids from the original series and or animated series are available as playable character races, and that does include the Klingons, even though they were still considered to be enemies during this period of time. And when you think about pre-generated characters, yes, you could play Kirk if you wanted, or Spock, or Bones, or Uhura, or Chapel, or... You're getting my point. Let's talk combat. Melee combat is handled in a single damage step, and that's what they call it, a damage step. The attacker rolls between 1d6 and 6d6, depending on the weapon, then adds strength, dexterity, and hand-to-hand -hand class modifiers. The defender subtracts 1d6 plus luck and hand-to-hand -hand modifiers from the attacker's total to get the total amount of damage. Ranged combat is a 1d6 roll with the result needing to be under a hit number, and that is based on the range and attacker's dexterity. Easy enough for me to say. As you'd expect, the advanced section of the book is full of charts and rules expansions that allow for a higher level of play than the basic rules. This section is where you'd find the rules for creating original characters, along with some more advanced combat rules, which took the simple combat rules we just covered and made them a lot more detailed. Oh, and if you wanted to have spaceship battles, you were shit out of luck. No rules for starships in this game. All of the adventures were presented as landing party missions. I've got a review, and it comes from Jerry Connor. He covered the game for the August 1980 issue of The Space Gamer, he said, quote, the game is fair, but only recommended to Star Trek fans with a background in role-playing games. Both are necessary for a complete understanding and appreciation of the game, end quote. Heritage Models dropped a second tabletop role-playing game in 1978, John Carter, Warlord of Mars. Designed by Michael S. Matheny, the book checked in at a healthy 64 pages with cover art from Russ Manning. Well, at least one printing of the book had that cover on it. There was a second printing in 1978 that had a red-tinted cover, so if you've got an original copy, check it out and you'll know what printing you've got. For someone writing a podcast about the history of role-playing games, this game is frustrating. Trying to find anything historical to use about this game was just about enough to drive me to drink, so needless to say, we don't have a hell of a lot to go with. Insofar as the setting, if you've read Edgar Rice Burroughs' novel series, you know the setting. If you haven't, you're probably not going to play this game anyway. The rules are set up for one-on-one -on -one combat and were written for miniatures, though there were a few rules for role-playing games. So, if I'm being honest, I'd call this a war game with a bit of role-playing game in it. I do have two reviews, and they happen to be competing views. John J. Nutter reviewed it for the September-October 1979 issue of The Space Gamer. He said, quote, Mr. Matheny has built a sound combat system and role-playing game which captures much of the flavor of the novels, end quote. Lawrence Schick had a different take on the game 12 years later. In his 1991 book Heroic Worlds, he noted that the rules were, quote, poorly organized, end quote, and stated, quote, players unfamiliar with the concepts of role-playing games would probably be unable to use them, end quote. John Carter, Warlord of Mars, never sold well for Heritage, and it didn't last long before it was abandoned. You seeing a little bit of a theme going on here? 
Knights and Magic is next on our list. Designed by Arnold Hendrick and published by Heritage USA in 1980, it was a boxed set with three 48-page books, one 32-page book, a 16-page digest-sized pamphlet, and a reference sheet. Insofar as what the game was, it was a lot like the John Carter game. It was intended to be a miniatures game, and the rules provided for mass or single combat. There were some very basic rules, spells, and other guidelines for role-playing games, but those were really intended to be used with other RPG systems or rules. Two more reviews, but I'd say it's safe to say they agree with each other this time. Aaron Alston had the honors for the January 1981 issue of The Space Gamer. He noted, quote, Overall, I would guardedly recommend Knights in Magic, but not to straight FRP gamers. They would find little use. Fantasy and historical miniature gamers will find some innovation and a good deal of resource material, end quote. Lawrence Schick noted in his book that he believed the game was, quote, designed mainly to sell heritage miniatures, end quote. Needless to say, Knights in Magic did not survive Heritage's demise as a company. We've got one more game to cover for today's tour, and it's got a rather interesting publishing history. Okay, maybe it's more sad than interesting, but I'm going to let you be the judge of that. Swordbearer was the final release from Heritage, and it was released in 1982. Written by B. Dennis Suster, along with Arnold Hendrick, it had illustrations from Denise Lubay and David Helber, while Helber did the cover art. It was published as a digest-sized box, which I'll get into momentarily, with two 48-page books, a 32-page book, a character sheet, and dice. And for those who might not know what I mean by digest size, we're talking about 7 inches by 8 inches with a landscape orientation. So, completely different from practically everything else on the market either at that time or at this time. And we'll get to that in a moment. I've got a bit more history to cover, but I wanted to get into what Swordbearer was about first. Trust me, this is all going to make more sense when I'm done. Swordbearer was a fantasy system that did a lot of different things from other games and systems. To start with, characters had no classes or professions. Instead of that, characters learned skills, typically two, from various spheres, including fighting, magic, and stealth. Swordbearer was a moneyless system where social status determined what a character could have, and it also worked as a role-playing tool, since if the player didn't play the character according to its status, the character could potentially lose that status. Magic was based on elemental summoning and spirit control, rather than actually learning spells. Also, there was no difference between religious magic and mage's magic. Both used the exact same system. Encumbrance was basically eliminated. Each character was allowed to carry 10 items, though it's been noted that what defined an item was pretty loose. While it was innovative, it didn't sell well, and writers over the years have suggested that the digest style was at least in part responsible, since a number of gamers might have assumed it was just another miniatures game instead of a full-fledged tabletop role-playing game, which would make sense since a lot of rules for miniature games at that time were the digest size. What Heritage might have done with Swordbearer over time will never be known, since the company went out of business not too long after it was released. But the game didn't die. 
Fantasy Games Unlimited purchased the rights to the game. And in a very interesting footnote to the story, Scott Bizar, the owner of FGU, purchased all of the old stock of Swordbearer from Heritage because he felt it was the right thing to do. And FGU didn't waste time getting their name on new printings. Early in 1985, they released a new printing of the game, keeping the same format as the first one, though it did get new cover art from Bill Willingham. Later in 1985, a so-called second edition was released as a two-book box set in the traditional format. Those books were a 60-page and a 32-page book. Other than the format size and the cover art, there weren't any significant differences between the FGU and Heritage versions of the game. Now, obviously, changing the format required some of the information to be moved to different books or sections than they might have been in previously, but all of the information appeared as it had been originally written, which is why the design credit didn't change. FGU also released a supplement for the game. Dwarven Halls was released in 1985. It was, as the name would suggest, a setting of dwarves in a valley, and a ton of information was provided. However, the supplement wasn't really Swordbearer-specific, as it was designed to be utilized in any setting you'd like to use it in. And that was all FGU would ever do for Swordbearer. By the end of 1986, it was done. Again, many have offered their thoughts on why this was the case. Some believe it was because FGU was focused more on chivalry and sorcery, which was their own game, while others believe the rules of Swordbearer made it too unwieldy for most tabletop role-playing players to want to pick up and run. No reviews here, but I think the rundown gives you a good idea of what people thought of it. And I know it goes without saying, but I need to mention it anyway. All of the releases I've detailed in this show are long out of print. So if you're looking for copies, check out your local used game or bookshop or hit up drivethroughrpg.com. And with that, we've come to the end of today's tour. Next week, I'm going to do a rundown and review of my own. I've been talking about the run of Goodman Games reprints of classic modules several times over the past year or so. And I picked a couple up at Archon, so I'm going to run you through one of those, and I'm going to let you know what I think. In the meantime, check out our other podcast, Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. That's the show where we build an entire campaign for you from scratch. Season 2 is the Fallout role-playing game, though everything we build can be lifted and dropped into the post-apocalyptic game of your choice. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Role-Playing History is a production of Bad GM Productions. We are all over social media, so check out the info box for this episode or our website, badgmproductions.net, to find out where you can follow us. Next week, I introduce you to the Goodman Games Reimagined Classic Modules. <laughs> this should be interesting. But that's next week. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis, and your role-playing history. <laughs>